please open your Bible or the Pew Bible up to Luke chapter 15. We're uh, looking at some select passages from the Gospel of Luke during Lent. This week we come to one of the most famous parables that Jesus told, perhaps second only to the uh, Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. It's well known both because of the details and because it rings true to my really believable scenario, the way these two sons go. Think, for example, of uh, Princes William and Harry. One fulfills the duties and obligations of a member of the royal family. The other casts all that off and moves to Hollywood. Maybe there's similar dynamics in your own family. A prodigal family member who strays. Uh, I can think of a, 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 being at a relative's wedding and another relative who's been on and off drugs his whole life showed up needing help and a parent went to help them and the rest of the family was so angry that they're again giving attention to this wandering family member. It's a storyline and an image that's repeated in art and literature. You can think of Rembrandt's famous paintings of the prodigal son and his return. Uh, it's, I'll mention later, in, it's a wonderful life. Uh, you kind of have a similar storyline there. But my favorite, perhaps, comes from Richard Scarry, the great author, and his two brothers, Pig Will and Pig Won't. Has anyone read this to their uh, kids or to themselves? Uh, whenever Ma or Pa Pig says to do something, Pig Will says, I will, and Pig Won't says, I won't. And it sounds a bit like our brothers in this story. Let's read together this parable. I'll read it out loud, and then we will look at it together. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent, himself, or sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, comes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. As we come to this parable, we need to remember that parables are short stories, not ciphers. That is to say, we don't come to the parables with our magic decoder ring and decode every detail of the parable, making it correspond to some true life or or, or real world detail. Rather, it's a short story that makes a point. In this case, we need to pay attention to the context. At the beginning of Luke 15, We read, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the context for this parable. Jesus tells it in response to the Pharisees and the scribes. But we need to note, this is not an indictment of the Pharisees, but rather a warning and indeed an invitation to them. In fact, Jesus tells three parables, each featuring what was lost being found. It's like three instruments playing the same song. They each have a different timbre and tone. Maybe they're in a different octave, but the melody is the same. First is the parable of the lost sheep. A shepherd comes and finds one of his hundred sheep lost, and he goes and he seeks it until he finds it, And he throws it over his shoulders and brings it back. And when he gets back, he calls his friends and neighbors to celebrate with him. For what was lost is now found. And Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In the second parable, a woman loses one of her ten silver coins. These silver coins are worth like ten days' wages. So it's like losing a paycheck. A significant amount of money. She She loses it somewhere in the dark of her house, so she lights the lights, she sweeps the house, she keeps cleaning until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors again to celebrate. Jesus says, just so there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then this third parable, much more elaborate, much more detailed, is about not one, but two lost sons. Indeed, these two sons show us two ways to be lost. They illustrate these two ways. One is the way of self-discovery, chasing after your desires. The other is the way of moral conformity, chasing duty. We see this in our own day, don't we? One sibling takes over the family business, buys his parents' house, takes care of his parents. The other sibling goes off to New York or Los Angeles or Toronto, pursues a totally different career, has little contact with the family. 
One prioritizes family, the other prioritizes friends. One focuses on duty and doing the right thing. It's their highest value. The other looks for experiences, exploration. Now, neither is inherently wrong, staying home or moving to a big city. But these two ways of seeking fulfillment lead to two ways of being lost. And we need to look at these two ways in turn. First, you can be lost in desire. You can be lost in your desires. The parable begins, there was a man who had two sons. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's a common beginning to a story, isn't it? Adam had Cain and Abel. Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. You can think of this pattern, two sons. Uh, Whatever Ruth's father-in-law's name was, has two sons, goes off into Moab. It's a common setup to a story. Oftentimes in in these stories, it's the younger son who becomes the focal point for the story. It's where our sympathies are meant to lie. And following that pattern, Jesus turns his attention first to the younger son who says to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. I want my portion of the inheritance now. And it says the father divides his property, or literally his life, between the two sons. Clearly, it's a well-off family. They have fields, they have servants or employees, they have robes, they have rings, they have a fattened calf. But their wealth is not in cash or capital, it's in assets. It's fields, livestock, farm equipment. They live by their hands, dividing their fields and their livestock is dividing their life. Now, distribution before death in, in, in ancient Judaism is not unheard of. It's perhaps unwise, but not inherently wrong. And you can think about this yourself, maybe some of you who have farming backgrounds. Uh, is it unreasonable that one son may want to farm some of the land his own way? Maybe he has his own ideas about what crops they should be planting or what animals they should be putting on the land. Okay, not intrinsically wrong. But after not many days, the son sells off everything. He gathers together all the possessions in cash. Okay, even there, not necessarily wrong. Lots of people go off to make their fortune, traveling to far lands. Maybe he's going to buy silk and spices to come back and trade. Maybe it's not all bad. We're told he journeys into the far country. And right up to this point, his actions are ambiguous. But what does he do? Is it a new business venture? No, he spends all that he has in reckless living. It's now apparent. The younger brother wants the father's assets, but not the father's authority. He wants freedom to chase after his own goals, his own desires, his own ways to experience the world. Calvin says the younger brother thinks he can't be happy without casting off his father's control. And indeed, this seems to be the dominant philosophy of our day, that you need to be free to be true to yourself, to live out your real authentic self, apart from the constraints of family expectations religious uh, boundaries, middle-class morals. Self-actualization is only possible by pursuing our desires. That's the philosophy of the day, isn't it? 
Well, for the younger brother, this is disastrous. When he'd spent a severe famine to the land, and he began to lack. This is the real downfall of this way of living. Uh, BBC recently had an interview or article about a man who's practicing what he calls solo polo polyamory. Uh, fancy Latin, solo, he's on his own. Polyamory means lots of lovers. So he's on his own sleeping around, but he has a fancy name for it. And he says, I realized that marriage was a constraint on my desires. Well, no duh. Okay, that's the whole kind of thing is that you're constraining yourself in marriage. And he says, now I found the way to be truly fulfilled, solo polyamory. Well, it might sound fancy when you're in your late 20s, but it's not very glamorous when you're in your late 70s and need help with your health care and your health's failing. Okay, chasing after your own desires and isolating yourself from all friends and family ultimately leaves you without resources when famine strikes. So the younger brother faces what John Muir calls the bread problem. He's got to eat to pursue his desires. He joins himself to one of the citizens of that country who hires him out to feed the pigs, apparently not at very good wages because he's looking at the pig's food and thinking that looks good. Well, the turning point comes in verse 17. He comes to himself. He comes to his senses, and he says, how many of my father's employees have bread enough to spare, but here I perish in famine? I know. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. This time, it's much easier to gather all that he had. Apparently, he doesn't even have a coat or shoes. His clothes are falling off his body, but he sets his plan in action. He heads home to work for his father. At this point, the story shifts to the father's perspective. Perhaps the father, when he works the fields, he's working on the farm, he always has one eye on the horizon looking for the son. We don't know how many months or years he's been waiting, but he's been waiting. And the father saw him at a distance. And he felt compassion or pity, and he ran and he fell on his neck, and he kept kissing him. The verb, is, it's ongoing. It's not just he kissed him once, but he keeps kissing him and embracing him. And the son starts to uh, recount his carefully practiced confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But in his great joy to have the son back, the father doesn't even acknowledge the younger son's confession. He says, hold that thought for a moment here. Uh, and then he calls out to the servants, quick, bring a robe to put on the son, bring shoes, put rings on his hands, slaughter the fattened calf, prepare a feast. Why? For this son was dead, but has now sprung to life. He was lost and now is found. What's Jesus's point here? He's saying there's a very obvious way to wind up lost. To pursue your desires to the exclusion of all else, to put aside family, friends, obligation, to chase your own desires, and you wind up lost and destroyed. But just like in the other two parables, there's rejoicing when the lost is found. So Jesus says here, if you would rejoice at finding one of your hundred lost sheep or one coin, 
how much more would you celebrate if one of your lost children came back to you? He's been gone perhaps for years. First too busy in his extravagant lifestyle to send notes home, and then too poor to afford the post. They have no word. As far as they know, he is indeed dead. But friends, some of you have children who have strayed. And if they came walking up the driveway without coat or shoes covered in dirt, would your first response be to chide them? I told you so. No, no. You wouldn't have a lawyer come draw up contracts so they can work off all their debt. Your first response would be to embrace them, to kiss them, to clothe them, to feed them. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But the story doesn't end there because Jesus is telling us about two ways to be lost. You can be lost chasing your desires, but you can also be lost in duty. You can be lost in duty. Look at verse 25. The older son's out in the fields working, and he comes back, and as he draws near, he hears music and dancing. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he heard the clinking of plates and saw everyone eating and smelled the grilling meat, right? It's not that they started the feast without him. Even a well-off family in ancient Palestine would not eat meat that frequently, perhaps once a week. Okay? And to bring in a cow, if you've ever butchered an animal, it's not like a microwave supper. It takes time to butcher an animal, to prepare it, to cook it. A fattened calf probably feeds 30 to 70 people, so likely they're inviting their whole village to this feast. It takes time to gather people together. What he hears is the sounds of preparation. But such is the joy that even the cooking in the kitchen breaks out in music and in dancing as they prepare this feast. He hasn't been left out. He hasn't been forgotten. But he calls the servant over. He's saying, what's going on? This is not the usual sound of preparing supper. The servant says to him, your brother has come. Your father is butchering the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. When the father saw the younger brother, he felt compassion. He felt pity. But when the older brother hears this, he feels anger, resentment. In fact, he refuses to come into the feast. So the father comes out to him and entreats him. He pleads with him. What's going on here? Well, we see in the older son's response in verses 29 and 30, Jesus words this very carefully, so we need to pay attention. You see, once the younger brother came to his senses, I think four or five times, he says, my father's servants, I will go to my father. I will say, my father, I have sinned against you. Father, I have sinned. How does the older son address his father, though? He says, look you, look you, I've been serving you. I've been slaving for you, you could even translate it, for years. Years on end, I've never disobeyed one of your commands, and yet you've never given me even a young goat to, that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours, it's not his brother, this son of yours, who's wasted all his wealth on whoring, comes back, you butcher a fattened calf, it's, it's worded quite strongly, quite rudely indeed. 
But you see how he conceptualizes his relationship to the Father, how he thinks of it, saying, I slave for you, I work for you, I obey all your commands, and yet you're not paying me my due. He thinks of his dad fundamentally as his boss. He's done his duty, he's fulfilled his role. He's like George Bailey in A Wonderful Life, remember? Uh, he has to, he can't go off to uh, uh, Europe for his trip because his father has a stroke. He can't go to college, and so he gives his tuition to the younger brother. He can't go to the war because of his injury. He can't go on his honeymoon uh, because the, the depression and the run on the banks, uh, and they use all their money on that. He fulfills his obligations to his community at every point. If the younger brother sought the good life through experiences, through self-discovery, through trying to live out his own desires, the older brother seeks the good life by fulfilling his role in society, by conforming to moral expectations. He looks for approval by doing the right thing by his family and by his community. And apparently he's played his role perfectly. The father faults him for nothing. Yes, indeed, you have perfectly obeyed. Yes, indeed, you have served me faithfully. But he's still lost. He's outside the feast, stewing in his own anger. In the last part of verse 29, I think we have a clue that there's a similarity between the brothers. The younger brother wants the wealth of his father, but not the father's authority. The older brother is perfectly obedient. He accepts the father's authority. But you see, he says, he doesn't say you haven't thrown a feast for me, you haven't feasted with me. He says, you haven't given me a goat to make merry with my friends. When he wants to relax, when he wants to enjoy life, he doesn't want anything to do with the father. The father's the boss. So both the younger and the older brother want the father's goods, but not the father himself. They want his wealth, but not the relationship with him. Friends, Jesus is incredibly insightful and penetrating in this parable. There's two ways to be lost. This morning, your sympathy might be with one or the other brothers. You might recognize yourself in one of these. You might be one who thinks that the way to fulfillment is to be my authentic self. I have to follow my desires. I have to cast off perhaps even social conventions, even if it scandalizes prudish middle-class morality. I have to be true to myself. That's one way to be lost. A second way, though, to be lost is in our duty itself. To earn good standing with our family, our community, indeed with God himself through hard work. I've served faithfully. I've obeyed every commands. Therefore, you owe me. Tim Keller observes, if this is your mindset, if you're lost in duty, when you do everything right, you serve faithfully, you keep all the commands, and something goes wrong, you still lose your job, your marriage still goes through a difficult season, you're diagnosed with cancer, something terrible happens to you, you've done everything right, then you're angry, like the older brother here. You're filled with anger and resentment and bitterness. God, this wasn't the deal. I did what you said, you owe me. On the other hand, if this is your mind, you know you've done something wrong, you failed to serve God in some way or another, and then things go wrong, you're in despair. You're angry with yourself. 
You say, if only I had been faithful, then this thing wouldn't happen. But as we looked at, was it last week or two weeks ago, the falling tower? Jesus says things happen in life. Famines come. And it's how we weather it is our relationship with God. Both ways of of life casting off morality and following desires or or making moral conformity conformity in our duty, our highest goal, both end up being lost. Either our desires leave us bankrupt and without a community to help us, weather famine and disaster, or our moral framework makes us angry and judgmental towards others. You know you're an older brother if you think about your siblings and you think, I can't believe they don't do what they should be doing. They haven't done X, Y, and Z. They're both ways of being lost if we pursue either desire or duty apart from God himself. If we want the benefits of God, his blessings, but we don't want the relationship with God. Okay, Jesus paints a picture for us, two ways of being lost. Chasing desire, chasing duty, they can both be lost. How then can we be found? How can we be found? In both episodes, the father goes out to the son. He doesn't wait for the son to come to him. The father, full of compassion, runs to the younger son, grabs him around the neck, kisses him. Before the younger son can even propose his plan to work off his debt, the father reinstates him. He shows grace to this prodigal son who wasted his wealth on reckless living. He rejoices that the son who was dead is alive, who was lost is now found. This is why Rembrandt paints this painting, because it's this beautiful scene of grace and reconciliation. But the father also has compassion on the older brother, who in his anger refuses to come in. The father doesn't say, tough luck to him. He can come in when he's good and ready. No, the father goes and pleads with him, begs him to come in. In both episodes, the father restores what was lost. And what a rich image this is. The younger son comes with no clothes, with no jacket, no robe, no shoes. And the father doesn't let him come into town in his shame, but brings out to him a robe, a ring, sandals, and brings him in, well-dressed in the honor of the father. The older brother says, you haven't even given me a goat. And the father says, you have me. You have me. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. He says, you don't realize it, but all these goats are yours. You can eat any of them you want, any time you want. Both sons then need to see that the right response to the lost being found, to the dead springing back to life, is celebration. It's to rejoice when a sinner repents. And so we have this beautiful picture of preparing for a feast that's so merry, that's so joyful that there's dancing in the kitchen while they get ready. They're dancing and singing around the spit while they turn the the fattened calf over the fire. It's a joyous feast punctuated with music and dancing. It's not just fitting to celebrate. I think ESV is wrong here. The word is it's necessary. It's necessary to celebrate. Uh, Jesus has said this a number of times we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. He says, it's necessary that I suffer, but it's necessary to celebrate and to be glad when the lost is found. 
We see in the two sons then a picture. It's a short story about ways to be lost. And we see ourselves in these two pictures. How then are we found? Well, the father comes out to us, but we can say more than that. One theologian puts it this way. Jesus is the running out of the father to meet his son. Jesus is hidden in the kiss which the father gives his son. Jesus is the power of the son's recollection of his father and home and his son's fatherliness and readiness to forgive. But we can say even more than that, even more. When we read these parables together, we notice something in the third parable. In the first parable, the the woman seeks diligently until she finds the lost coin. But in the third parable, no one seeks the lost son. The father comes out to them, but who is seeking? Well, remember, this is just a story, not a cipher that we use a decoder ring on. But Jesus is hinting, he's pointing at the great truth. That Jesus himself is our true older brother who journeyed into the far country, not like this prodigal son to waste himself, or perhaps to waste himself. He leaves heaven and makes himself poor as the lost sons. He comes, he spends all that he has. Indeed, we could say Christ himself lives a reckless life. Not reckless in immorality like this young son, but reckless that he doesn't even have a home. Certainly he has no retirement account. He gives all that he has to seek the lost. In fact, the prodigal son points us even more. This parable points us even more to the truth that we're preparing to celebrate at Easter. That Christ truly, truly is the son who dies and then springs back to life so that what is lost can be found. Christ lives recklessly. He's the true prodigal son who goes into the far country to bring back what is lost. This parable ends on a very open note, though. I don't know if you've noticed this. We hope that by the father's love and grace, the younger son is transformed and he gives up his wild way of living. But we don't know that. Maybe after a couple months, he sets out and does the same thing again. It ends with the father pleading with the son, son, all that I have is yours. You've been with me this whole time. It's necessary to celebrate. And we hope the older son goes in with the father. But we don't hear Why does Jesus end in this open-ended way instead of reassuring us and they lived happily ever after? Well, remember at the beginning, this is a parable that Jesus is telling to warn and to invite the Pharisees. He's making the point, saying, these tax collectors and sinners eating with me, yeah, they're like the younger son. They've made huge messes of their lives, and it's obvious to everyone who looks at it. But he's saying, if you let your resentment towards them keep you from coming to my feast you'll miss out too. And so it's an invitation to come into the feast. And so friends, the same open-ended invitation stands before us. I don't know which law characterizes your heart, but I bet you do. Is it chasing after desires, saying I need to live an authentic life in this way? Christianity seems like a constraint to my morality, forcing me to live in a certain way. 
it ends in the sty with the pigs. That's the end of that road, but it doesn't have to end there because the Father comes out and embraces us even when we got pig slop all over us. Even when we don't have shoes or a coat on, he embraces us and kisses us. The Son comes to find us, to bring us his righteousness. Or maybe your way of being lost, as is typical for many Christians, is by following the rules. I've done everything right. I've lived by the good book. And now God owes me a certain sort of life. But is your desire for God himself? Is it for God himself? You know this kind of temptation because if you see grace given to some profligate sinner, you say, how dare God forgive them? How dare they show up in church dressed like that, acting like that? If that's your hard attitude, if that's your temptation, there's good news there as well. The father again comes out. The son again seeks and pleads, saying it's all grace. It's necessary to celebrate. You hear the invitation. It's to you to respond. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your parables, for these stories that are so profound and so sharp. Indeed, they lay bare our own hearts, our own motives. But of course, a story can't say everything. We know that the lost prodigal son only comes to his senses through the work of your spirit within his heart. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that your spirit would be at work in the heart of those who have fled from you. Let them come to themselves. Let them come to their senses. Let them remember the great love of the Father. Likewise, we know that anger and bitterness is melted only by the work of your Holy Spirit. For those of us, Lord, who tend towards self-righteousness in our own obedience, melt our hearts Let us be gracious. Thank you that you have sent your Son to seek and save the lost and your Spirit to draw us to your Son, to give us desire for your Son. As we sing your praise and we come to your table, we ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would be at work changing our lives even now. Amen. Let's respond to God's word.